Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are happy to welcome you to this year's lecture series arranged in memory of Sardar Vallabhai Patel. All India Radio introduced this annual this series of lectures in 1955 in memory of Sardar Vallabhai Patel, who was the first Minister for Information and Broadcasting of Free India. Since then, many eminent personalities who have specialized in various branches of knowledge of India have broadcast in this series. This evening, we have with us Dr. S. Z. Kasim, the eminent marine scientist and oceanographer, presently Vice-Chancellor of Jamia Millia Islamia Central University. He will deliver in two parts this evening and tomorrow, a lecture. The subject is Ocean, the Future Hope of Mankind. Sri C. R. Ramaswamy, Deputy Director General, All India Radio, will now introduce the speaker. Dr. Yes Z. Kasim, ladies and gentlemen, I have great pleasure in extending to you all a hearty welcome. The series on Sardar Patel Memorial Lectures were instituted by All India Radio in the memory of our illustrious leader and architect of India's political consolidation, Sardar Vallabhai Patel. Sardar Vallabhai Patel was also the first Minister for Information and Broadcasting of Free India. He was in addition Home and States Minister and Deputy Prime Minister of Independent India. These series of lectures are aimed at extending the body of knowledge in the subjects of great concern, promoting awareness and generating public discussion on contemporary subjects. The first lecture in this series was delivered by the late Sri Chakravarti Rajagopalachari in 1955. A galaxy of eminent scholars and thinkers delivered these lectures in the last score of years. It's our privilege in having Dr. S. Z. Kazim to address us today in the series of lectures. The subject is Ocean, the Future Hope of Mankind. Man has been fascinated by the sky, stars and the sea ever since the beginning of creation. Naturally, the great poets have immortalized the skies and the seas. In his Adoni, Shelley has written these lines at once beautiful and moving. Quote, as long as skies are blue and fields are green, evening must move night, night urge the morrow." Unquote. Again, the opinions of poets as to the color of the sea have varied much. Horace thought it was wine dark. Andrew Marvell thought it green. The explanation for the color of the sky, based on the scattering of light by the molecules of atmosphere, brought Lord Raleigh the Nobel Prize for Physics. Incidentally, Lord Raleigh was no stranger to Calcutta. He had visited Calcutta and stayed in this state of West Bengal. He was for some time in Darjeeling. Similarly, the explanation for the blue of the sea based on the scattering of light by the molecules of water led on C.V. Raman to the discovery named after him. It also got him the Nobel Prize. 
Raman, as you all know, spent some of his very productive years in Calcutta. Furthermore, Milton talks about the stars, quote, stars seen in the galaxy which nightly as a circling zone thou seest powdered with stars, unquote, in Paradise Lost. And it's well to remind ourselves again at Calcutta that Meghna Saha's famous formula described by Sir Audrey Eddington as one of the greatest discoveries in the history of astronomy almost literally brought stars to the laboratory and broadened the scope of research into the subject. But there is more about the ocean than its poetry and its mystery, as Dr. Kasim's lecture will presently unfold. In this tercentenary year of Calcutta, we could not have thought of a more appropriate venue than this city for the subject chosen, a field of intense scientific activity and holding great promise for the future, the ocean. Calcutta, as all of us know, has a strong and a long tradition of scientific learning and research. Dr. Kasim, today's speaker, needs no introduction to those with even a peripheral interest in oceanography and allied subjects. Dr. Syed Zahur Kasim had his early education in Allahabad. He obtained his MSc degree from the Aligarh Muslim University, Aligarh, and his PhD and DSc degrees from the University of Wales, United Kingdom. He has been deeply involved in the development of marine sciences in the country for about four decades. He has published nearly 200 scientific papers in national and international journals. He has held several key positions earlier, including the director Central Marine Fisheries Research Institute, Cochin, and the director National Institute of Oceanography, Goa. He was secretary to the Government of India, Department of Environment, and later secretary, Department of Ocean Development. He is at present the Vice-Chancellor of Jamia Millia Islamia Central University. Dr. Kasim led the first Indian scientific expedition to Antarctica, which landed on the frozen continent on the 9th January 1982. He also led the expedition to explore polymetallic modules in the Indian Ocean. Dr. Kasim has received several awards like the Rafi Ahmad Kidwai Memorial Prize, by the Indian Council of Agricultural Research in 1974, Chandrakala Hora Memorial Gold Medal by the Indian National Science Academy in 1975, Golden Jubilee Gold Medal by the Institute of Science Bombay in 1975, FIE Award in 1983, and the Lal Bahadur Shastri Award in 1989. He was awarded Padma Shri in 1974 and the Padma Bhushan in 1982. May I now request Dr. S. Z. Kazim to deliver his lecture. Dr. Kazim. Shri Siya Ramaswamy, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I feel greatly honored to be invited by the All India Radio to deliver these two lectures before such a distinguished audience. And I would like to thank Shri Amrit Rao Shinde, Director General of the All India Radio, and Shri C. R. Ramaswamy, Deputy Director General of All India Radio, for their very kind invitation. First of all, I would pay my homage to Sardar Vallabhai Patel, who was Free India's first Minister of Information and Broadcasting, and in whose memory this lecture series has been instituted and these lectures are being delivered every year 
from different cities. This is the first time that this lecture series is being delivered from this great city, Calcutta. And I'm very happy and proud of doing it on the occasion of the 300th anniversary of this great city this of art, science and culture, which falls this year. Calcutta is the oldest metropolis of our country and it indeed holds the key of Indian history and Indian civilization. India as a nation owes a great deal to Vallabhai Patel, who was in his own right a rank freedom fighter, an organizer, a statesman, an administrator, and an architect of the Indian nation. He was born in an agriculturist family of Nadiad in the Kheda district of Gujarat. It is said that his father had a record of joining the army of Rani of Jhansi and fought against the British. Sardar Patel made his debut in politics by joining the Gujarat Sabha in 1915. In 1917, he came in contact with Mahatma Gandhi, who was the president of the Gujarat Sabha. It marked the beginning of a long and fruitful association of these two great leaders. In 1920, he joined the non-cooperation movement launched by Gandhiji. From then onwards, he joined the freedom movement and fought against the British regime. In 1942, he joined the Quit India movement and was detained in Ahmednagar Fort in Yarrawada Jail. As an able negotiator, he played a vital role in the discussions with Sir Stafford Cripps in 1942, in the Simla Conference in 1945, and in the Cabinet Mission Talk in 1946. Joining the interim government in 1946, he became the Minister of Information and Broadcasting and in charge of Home Affairs. In the following period of crisis, it was his firm hand that maintained law and order in the country. In independent India, he became the Deputy Prime Minister and looked after the state's ministry. One of the most notable achievements was his handling of the intricate problem of the accession of 560 Indian states. Even Lord, Lord Mountbatten described it as high-minded statesmanship. Sardar appealed to the sense of patriotism and said, and I quote, we are at the momentous stage in the history of India. By a common endeavor, we can raise the country to a new greatness, unquote. He was the, thus responsible in consolidating the Indian Union. A realist, a patriot, an organizer, the Sardar was a man of iron will who never allowed personal sentiments to confuse his duties. It is in the memory of such a distinguished son of India that the lecture 
Ocean, the Future Hope of Mankind is dedicated and we have assembled here to commemorate his memory. Human race has been depending largely on land resources for its welfare and survival. With intensive exploitation, the land resources are rapidly getting depleted and it is believed that within the this coming 25 to 30 years, many raw materials that are at present obtained from the land will be in acute short supply. Therefore, attention has been drawn towards the oceans which cover 71% of the earth. The oceans contain almost all the natural resources which the land offers and many more. Since mankind will have to depend on the oceans for its survival, it is very necessary to give a considerable thought to planning and execution of ocean science and technology program in the country. For India, the science of oceanography is a young science. It began in an organized fashion during the early 60s and in less than 28 years it has made spectacular progress. As time passes, our dependence on the sea is rapidly increasing. Since ancient times, sea has been used for two main purposes, fishing and shipping. But the recent discovery of offshore oil and gas, other minerals, chemicals, drugs and energy extraction has convinced everyone that some of the biggest treasures in the world lie hidden in the sea. Thus the ocean is called our last frontier and mankind is looking towards the sea as our future hope. The old saying that the country which controls the sea rules over the earth has proved to be true beyond doubt. It has been estimated that the available land per person in the early part of this century will be reduced to about half of the area available today for different activities of human beings. In many parts of the world, land is not readily available. Even if it is available, the pressure on land for agriculture, housing, industries and other activities is so enormous that it will go on reducing progressively each year for our needs. Therefore, in our strategy for future planning, we will have to consider first what will be the population trend and what the oceans really offer to be called as future hope of mankind. There is a general agreement among the demographers that the population of India by the year 2000 AD will approach the 1000 million mark or 1 billion. Projections generally range from a low estimate of 875 million to a high estimate of 1020 million. Thus it is almost certain that by the year 2000 AD the population will be around 998 million. Of this, five zero, 508 million will probably be males and 490 millions females. These estimates clearly indicate the immensity 
of the population problem to be tackled in India. This would also mean that about one-sixth of the world population will become congregated in a one-fiftieth part, one-hundred-and-fiftieth part of the world's surface area, and this population will have to be sustained from the agricultural land far below than what it is available today. India has a coastline of about 7,000 kilometers. Assuming that 25% of the present population of 850 million live in the coastal areas within a few hundred miles from the seashore, it can be estimated that about 212 million people are directly or indirectly dependent on the sea for their livelihood. Even for those who live in landlocked regions, the influence of the sea on their daily lives is significant. Along the coastline, the many rivers discharge about 1,645 cubic kilometers of fresh water into the sea. Of this quantity, nearly 75% is discharged into the Bay of Bengal. 14 major rivers of India carry about 85% of the total runoff covering 83% of the drainage basins, while about 80% of the population lives in these basin areas. The seas around, the seas around India receive four times as much rainfall as does, does the land. During the next two decades, one of the areas in which the most spectacular advances are expected to be made is the ocean sector. Coastal and offshore activities are rapidly on the increase in India. The establishment of the Department of Ocean Development shows that the Government of India is giving a high priority to the frontier areas of ocean development. During the last 10 years, our country has made notable advances in the field of ocean development which have enhanced our prestige considerably among the other nations of the world. Large investments are being planned for the exploration and exploitation of various ocean resources such as food, chemicals, minerals, transportation, recreation and energy to improve the socio-economic conditions of the vast population. The offshore construction and operational activities have been rapidly increasing largely because of the exploration and exploitation of oil and gas. Let us first take how ocean regulates our climate. It is the ocean which regulates and determines our climate. The seasonal monsoon on which the livelihood of millions of people depends is the energy released by the sea. The rainfall occurring on land is simply a physical manifestation of that energy. Large scale Oceanic circulations are driven by atmospheric winds and by an exchange of heat with the overlying atmosphere. In addition, there are other transfer mechanisms such as evaporation, precipitation and river discharge which couple atmospheric system with the ocean. Recent years have witnessed two important developments in the global climate program and these are likely to play an important role in the future. The first includes space-based platforms which have a continuous link with weather satellites. And the second 
is related to large computer capabilities for simulating ocean atmosphere exchanges. India is using both these very effectively and the supercomputer recently obtained from the United States and installed in the Mosam Bhavan, which is the office of the India Meteorological Department, is an important development in this direction in India. Our knowledge of the sea will give us a more accurate weather forecast and our understanding of the monsoon, which is most important for our survival, will become far greater as time passes. In the early years of this century, Sir Gilbert Walker embarked on a search for predictors which could, could be associated in a statistical sense with the summer monsoon rainfall over India. During this search, he found three important oscillations in the world weather. By far, the most important of these is the southern oscillation located in the Indian Ocean, which is now known also as the major southern oscillation. It refers to a tendency for the accumulation of high pressure over the Indian Ocean to be associated with the removal of air, which is low pressure, from the Pacific and vice versa. The intensity of southern oscillation showed marked changes from one year to the next. The oceanic response to the southern oscillation appears to be linked with a phenomenon which is known as El Nino of the coast of Peru. This phenomenon is associated with the warm current passing along the coast of Latin America. Very little is known of the reverse process, namely the atmospheric response to ocean anomalies. Clearly, there are global, long-time scale atmospheric ocean systems about which our understanding is not very clear. The next two decades will see the most exciting revelations of our knowledge of the ocean and climate, and by the year 2000, our understanding of the monsoon, which is the lifeline of our wa water supply, agriculture, and power supply, will become far greater. Another area in which ocean will assist a great deal is providing living space for human habitation and settlement. As you all know, in all the large cities of India, all the shallow areas are being reclaimed for human habitation. Even in Calcutta, if you look at the history, Job Charnak, who was a personnel from the East India Company, bought three villages from the Zamindars, and these were named Govindpur, Sotaniti, and Kalikatta. Calcutta consisted of only these three villages. The great metropolis that you see today is built on reclaimed land. Any large city like Bombay will convince you that ocean will provide more and more space for human habitation. There are also concepts available that people will be living in tunnels under the sea, very similar to the underground railway system that you have built in Calcutta, the first of its kind in our country, such tunnels will be used for human habitation with sea above us. There are also concepts available that people will be living on man-made artificial islands in the sea. And to prove this, 
the new Tokyo airport, which is being built in Japan, is on a man-made island. There are also concepts that people will be living in capsule underwater in the sea, very similar to what we have in submarine systems and capsules. Air supply will come from the atmosphere and there will be a built-in mechanism in case it fails. There will be the oxygen supply and the carbon dioxide removal from within the capsule. The other very important use of the ocean is recreation. Tourism is a big industry and people go to sea to find fresh air and for holiday purposes. They do diving, snorkeling, surfing, surf riding, underwater sports and photography. Luxury hotels and tourist complexes become an important source of revenue from tourist industry. And tourist industry is really more or less a pollution-free industry. West Bengal has a beautiful beach called Diga, and I'm very happy that the West Bengal government is promoting tourism in Diga area. Tourist complexes are coming up, and every encouragement is being provided for tourist industry to develop at Diga. I am hoping that I will be able to visit Diga early next month to see this most beautiful beach that uh, the, this state has. I will now take up briefly the living resources of the sea about which you are all very familiar. Under the living resources, we will consider capture fishery, culture fishery, seaweeds, mangroves, and coral reefs. The oceans occupy merely three-fourths of the, as you know, nearly three-fourths of the Earth's surface with an average depth of 3,730 meters. Now, the most important zone in the sea is the top 100-meter zone, this is the uppermost, where photosynthetic activity takes place and where organic matter is being produced. From this zone, more than 50% of the world's fish catch is obtained at present. The regions occupying this zone are either fairly close to the coast or are in very fertile areas of coastal or offshore upwelling regions called the oasis of the sea. We must remember that ocean has its own desert areas and also its most fertile areas. Since fertile areas constitute only 25% of the total oceanic areas, it can be assumed that 75% of the ocean area may be termed as oligotrophic or with moderate to low production rates. In India, marine fish production consists largely of capture fisheries and for these, the in intensively exploited areas are found in the narrow coastal belt. In 1947, when we gained independence, this, the fish production in India was about 0.4 million tons. In 1979-80, it has increased to 1.4 million tons. In 1970, it passed the 1 million mark, and thereafter, 
its increase has been somewhat unsteady. Today our marine fish production is of the order of 1.6 million tons. During the last few decades, substantial inputs have been provided for marine fisheries in the form of infrastructure, institutional base and manpower. At present, India ranks sixth in the list of fish producing countries. Fish constitutes only about 4% of the world's food production, but in Asia, it supplies about 45% of the total animal protein to the people. Within the next 27 years, India has also emerged as one of the foremost exporters of seafood in the world. The export of seafood, which started in 1962 from India with a modest value of rupees 4 crores, has shown a very high rate of increase and in 1988 it has reached rupees 600 crores in value. The estimate of potential fish yield from the Indian Ocean vary from about 7 million to 17 million tons. Of this potential, India's contribution is expected to be of the order of 5 to 9 million tons. Thus, a 4 to 6 fold increase over the existing production is possible. From the present stage of our knowledge about the potential and sustainable yield, the fish production from the Indian exclusive economic zone is expected to be about 3 million tons. The projected fish requirement of India's population by the year 2000 are estimated to be 11.4 million tons. Of this, 60 to 75 percent is expected to come from the sea and the rest from freshwater resources. The increase in fish production during the last three decades has been attributed to the increase in mechanized fishing vessels, of which there are now more than 25,000 in the country. However, the operating cost of these vessels has increased so much that unless a substantial quantity of high quality fish is caught with 20% or more of the catch consisting of prawns, fishing becomes somewhat uneconomical. It is therefore very unlikely that the expected targets for the year 2000 will be met from mechanized fishing alone. Another important and productive sector, namely mariculture or sea farming, is not properly organized in India. This is unlike the freshwater fish culture, which is very well organized in places like West Bengal. And I'm largely talking about the mariculture, which is still being practiced on a small scale in the enclosed backwater and estuarine areas of Andhra, Kerala, Karnataka, and also West Bengal. The culture is largely based on traditional method of trapping the juveniles of prawns and fishes brought in by the tidal currents into the enclosed areas provided with sluice gates where they are allowed to grow from three to nine months before harvesting. The total production of fish and prawns from aquaculture practices is about 20,000 tons. The potential in this sector appears to be most promising and by the year 2000, the annual production of 4 million tons appears to be within reach. World aquaculture production is, is expected to reach 70 million tons by the year 2000. And this is supposed to come largely from the developing countries. Intensive efforts are being made in Asian and Southeast Asian countries
to attain a substantial increase in fish production and by the year 1990 so as to achieve the targets laid down by the turn of the century. In India also, sea farming has started producing significant quantities of seafood. Seaweeds are one of the important living resources exploited by man for food, animal feed, fertilizers, and for chemicals and pharmaceutical products. The total marine algal yield of the world has been estimated to be 172,000 tons per year. Of this, India's contribution is only about 2% of the total. The demand for agar-producing seaweeds and alginin-producing seaweeds by industry in India and abroad is increasing very rapidly. Unfortunately, India has not yet fully utilized its seaweed resources. Seaweed-based industries in India came into existence during the last 25 years, and because of the shortage of natural resources, many industries are confronted with serious problems. Before the advent of an indigenous seaweed industry, about 200 tons of dried seaweeds used to be exported from India annually. Shortage of seaweed is faced by most of the industries because of the depletion of natural seaweed resources after harvesting. The natural regeneration in the beds is not fast enough to meet the demand, so that the only way to generate extra resources is by cultivating the seaweeds on ropes and wooden frames. Production by cultivation is likely to increase substantially during the next two decades. But intensive efforts combined with research and development are required to achieve this target. In India, mangrove ecosystem, as in several other countries, have been severely depleted during the last two decades. Your famous Sundarbans area, which is the habitat of the Indian tiger, is a mangrove area. In the past, they have been, the mangroves have been treated as unwanted plants and were largely used as a source of timber and charcoal. It is only in recent years that they have been recognized as ecologically vital areas. Mangroves play a very important role in protecting the shoreline from major erosion damage. The ecosystem forms an ideal nursery for juvenile forms of many economically important species of mullets, sea trout and shrimps. A large percentage of detrital food that supports a variety of young fishes and shrimps is generated from mangroves. Awareness of conservation issues and the need of protection for mangroves has been developing rapidly in most of the tropical and subtropical regions and by the year 2000 while mangroves will be denuded from most of the shorelines of India because of the population pressure on land some mangrove forests will be protected as biosphere reserves. It is only in these areas that future studies on the mangrove ecosystem will be undertaken. We have two very famous mangrove forests in our country, the Sundarbans forest in West Bengal, which is the home of the Bengal tiger, as I have said earlier, and the lush mangrove forests of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. Both these require conservation. Coral reefs are among the most biologically productive, taxonomically diverse, and aesthetically important living communities. While their massive occurrence provides much-needed protection for the coastline from waves, their biological productivity yields 
a multitude of fauna and flora dependent on the coral reef ecosystem. The communities also form the main attraction for skin diving, underwater photography, sports fishing and shell collecting. They thus provide a vital stimulus to the tourist industry. Due to population pressure, most of the coral reefs have become extremely vulnerable to pollution and industrial development along the coastline. Hence, unless protection is offered to coral reefs in the future, most of them will shrink in size and will ultimately die. The forecast is that out of most of the fringing reefs in India, along the main coastline, only a few will survive by the year 2000 unless extensive protection is offered to them in the form of coastal marine parks. The reefs that would probably flourish would be on the atolls of the Lakadives and on some of the islands of the Andaman and Nicobar. Some states such as Tamil Nadu and Gujarat have declared certain areas of coral reefs as protected. I will now briefly take up non-living resources. In terms of population growth, the world supply of fresh water is dwindling very rapidly every year and therefore measures are being undertaken to obtain drinking water at least from all possible sources. There are many areas in India where potable water is in short supply and thus people even resort to drinking saline water very often very containing objectionable chemicals. For example, the presence of fluorine in drinking water causes what is commonly known as a disease called fluorosis, a disease leading to painful symptoms of bone deformity. Several desalination technologies are being employed to generate fresh water from seawater. And as you must have heard, the, in the Gulf countries, mostly the supply of fresh water is using desalination technology. The first method is by solar stills. These are well suited for small and isolated communities where water is limited and where power is either not available or it is in short supply and the transport of large quantities of water from neighboring places is, is not possible. The solar still consists of a glass chamber in which the seawater is heated by sun rays and made to boil. The steam vapors are condensed as fresh water. Solar stills are ideal for small coastal villages as these run on non-expendable energy source. They are simple to construct and their operating and maintenance costs are minimal. A solar still of 5,000 liter per day capacity has been installed in Avnia village in Gujarat where 500 families obtain their drinking water from this source. The water is absolutely safe, disease-free, and even bacteria-free. The other method of obtaining fresh water from seawater is by flash distillation. In this process, heated saline water is allowed to flow through a series of chambers which are maintained at different pressures below atmospheric and progressively decrease towards the end of the series. Saline water thus evaporates in each section of the chamber. The vapor is released and then condensed over a bundle of tubes cooled by circulating seawater inside them. The distillate of fresh water thus produced at each stage is gathered either separately or collectively.
to be used as fresh water for drinking and for other domestic needs. The third method is by electrodialysis. This technique employs iron selective membranes for the desalination of brackish water. Electrodialysis is more economical for salinities below 5,000 parts per million. The energy cost of the process is directly proportional to the salinity. Thus, beyond 5,000 ppm, the process is no longer economical. The fourth method is by reverse osmosis. This is, this is the most widely used method in India. In this process, suitable osmotic membranes are used which reject salts and allow the water to pass through when the seawater is put under high pressure. Several plants with capacities of 50,000 to 100,000 liters have been set up in Indian villages to supply portable water to the villagers. The institution which has contributed very richly uh, to this field is the Central Salt and Marine Chemical Research Institute Bhavnagar in Gujarat. This institution has refined and updated the technology of reverse osmosis and has passed it on to Bharat Heavy Electricals Limited, which is now supplying plants of different sizes in the country. In the future, desalination technology of different types will play a distinct role, particularly in India's rural development program for the supply of potable water. However, it is not certain that desalination technology can produce enough water to meet the demand of growing population. It can only supplement other technologies but will not provide a substitute. The next area I'm going to take up very briefly is the drugs from the sea. In India, the utilization of marine plants and animals as a raw material for effective and safe drugs and pharmaceutical is of recent origin. Of the 200 or more organisms that have been screened so far, many have been found to be very promising. The most remarkable feature is the anti-fertility properties of several marine organisms. Recently, prostaglandins, which play a major role in controlling biological reproduction, have been isolated from the seaweed gracilaria. Studies in India indicate that all those species of marine algae that exhibit anti-fertility properties may also contain prostaglandins. For this work, the scientists of the National Institute of Oceanography in Goa are to be congratulated because they took the initiative to establish a team of scientists capable of handling this project successfully. Researches in this field are also on the culture of marine bacteria, fungi, yeast, etc. will advance considerably during the next two decades for the production of bioactive substances. Marine chemicals. Of the 60 elements present in seawater, only six are recovered commercially. These are sodium and chlorine in the form of common salt, magnesium and its compounds, bromine and its compounds, calcium and sulfur in the form of calcium, sulfate, gypsum, etc. Owing to its low concentration, the recovery of potassium directly from seawater is not considered economical. However, it is possible to recover potassium from bitterns, the mother liquor of salt extraction. Efforts are being made to recover many useful elements commercially, namely iodine, uranium, and gold from seawater. 
so far owing to the availability of cheaper extraction methods from land deposits the technology of obtaining some of these valuable elements either from sea water sea brine or sea weeds is not economical recently a commercial process for the recovery of uranium from sea water has been reported it is almost certain that research in this field will accelerate considerably and a very large number of elements will be recovered from sea water in commercial quantities by the year 2000 placer deposits these are mineral deposits found along the coastline and are seen on the exposed beaches chemically stable minerals are not decomposed by weathering process as is the rocks surrounding such minerals become dissolved and disintegrate the heavy particles settle to the bottom in layers and become continuously enriched as heavy chemically stable minerals all such concentrates are called placers mineral placers along the seashore usually known as black sand occur in many localities along the indian coast deposits on the west coast are largely concentrated at high grade beach low grade dune deposits extending from kanyakumari to maharashtra coast from uh, with interruptions in between the, these deposits mainly contain ilmenite rutile zircon and monazite with varying proportions of, of magnetite and garnet as time passes their importance and value will go on increasing and by the turn of the century they will probably be exploited very extensively offshore mining major minerals available from the sea are minerals on the sea floor and in the seabed and minerals from the sea water from the ocean floor coal gold diamond tin iron phosphorus potash sulfur and rare earth metals are being mined by several countries india exploits only a few of these mining from the sea is either done by tunneling pumping or dredging mining companies are extracting coal from the sea beneath the shelf in several countries by tunneling under the sea for more than 5 kilometers iron ore is also extracted by tunneling however undersea tunneling for mineral is expensive and sometimes hazardous special engineering problems of undersea tunneling add to the extraction costs making competition with land producers totally uneconomical pumping of many minerals from the seabed is also an increasing activity as in the case of sulfur and potash in many countries thus many offshore and placer deposits are exploited by pumping the material from the seabed to the shore dredging in the sea is becoming increasingly important for mining of heavy minerals such as biogenic materials coral shells etc by the turn of the century the demand for all minerals will increase 2 to 3 fold thus their production from land sources alone will be difficult to meet the rising demand in india efforts are underway to collect all possible information on the nature of marine mineral resources to work out the most efficient extraction method of both placer and offshore deposits so that the withdrawal of minerals from the sea can become economical it is to be hoped that environmental protection will not be ignored in the search 
for profitability. In the past two decades have witnessed the development of technology to mine polymetallic nodules from a depth range of 4,000 to 6,000 meters and to extract the economically important metals from them. They have also witnessed the development in the third United Nations Conference on the Law of the Sea of the legal and institutional framework in which the exploitation of the nodules will take place. Who will exploit these resources? How will this be done? And who will benefit from these exploitations are some of the questions which can be answered now. The crucial factor in the development of resources such as polymetallic nodule is the economics of their recovery. Due to uncertainties in the scientific explanation regarding the nature of the resources, the relative inaccessibility and the lack of adequate technologies, even the most basic questions about the magnitude and the distribution of nodules are still imperfectly answered. It was only in the year 1960 that the nodules were recognized as the largest resource on the deep sea bed. They exhibit varied physical and chemical properties and occur in different sizes. And they are essentially porous. Generally, they have been described as dark, potato-shaped lumps. Their chemical composition also varies widely. In the field of placer deposits, offshore mining, and deep sea mining, the contribution made by the National Institute of Oceanography, Goa, remains unparalleled, and the scientists of this institution deserve the highest appreciation of the country. It is entirely because of the work of NIU Goa that our country has received admiration in the field of deep sea mining. The first successful cruise for polymetallic nodule was undertaken in 1981 in the Indian Ocean. The cruise was undertaken in the Indian-built research vessel Gaveshini of NIU Goa, and I had the privilege of leading this cruise as chief scientist on board the vessel. We worked for nearly 15 days with no results. But on the 16th day, the day being the 26th January, the Republic Day, when we lifted the first nodule sample from a depth of about six kilometers. The success of this cruise generated a great deal of interest within the scientific community of India. The government of India set up in July 1981 a new Department of Ocean Development to act as an orderly agency in the country for policy coordination promotion of research to give uh, a new thrust to the overall development in the ocean sector. When we got the first sample of nodules at sea and we sent a message to the Prime Minister, we got immediately a reply from Srimati Indira Gandhi congratulating the efforts of the scientists. The new Department of Ocean Development identified the program for exploration of polymetallic nodules as one of the major thrust areas. India was the first among the developing countries to successfully carry out an oceanographic program dedicated to manganese nodule ex exploration. Based on the results of the exploration carried out by the National Institute of Oceanography, a, a prime area of 4 million square kilometer was initially demarcated in which extensive survey work had to be conducted to identify the most promising mine site. These efforts led to the demarcation of a total application area of 300,000 square kilometers, which was divided into two regions of 150,000 square kilometers each of equal estimated commercial value. The Indian claim for a mine site in the...
Central Indian Ocean was thus filed with the Preparatory Commission of the International Seabed Authority in January 1984. However, after prolonged negotiations among the first group of pioneer investors, India, France, Japan and the USSR and the, with the PREPCOM on the resolution of overlapping claims in the Pacific and other related issues, the Indian application was revised and resubmitted in 87, 1987, which was registered by PREPCOM and an area of 150,000 square kilometers was allotted to India. Thus, India became the first country in the world to have the registration of a mine site. This event was regarded as an important landmark in the history of Indian oceanography. The Prime Minister of India was pleased to give the news to both the Houses of Parliament, where it was received with considerable applause. Besides the survey and exploration, the R&D work on the extractive metallurgy in respect of polymetallic nodule is also in progress at four national laboratories, namely the Regional Research Laboratory Bhuvaneshwar, the National Metallurgical Laboratory Jamshedpur, the Hindustan Zinc Limited Udaipur, and Hindustan Copper Limited Khetri. A number of process routes are also under investigations in these laboratories. I will just briefly cover a few more points on ocean engineering. Engineering tasks associated with the oceans are many times more expensive than similar activities on land. Moreover, the hazards of work are greater and the management of operations more demanding. The farther a structure lies from the shore or the greater the distance from the source of supply, the more prodigious will be the cost of marine operation. Several problems pertaining to ocean engineering include designs and construction to withstand the very high pressure and hydroelastic forces due to flow and wave action, especially on cylinder structures. Estimation of wave and current forces of a particular location, transport of polyphase mixture, etc. The vast coastal zone of India is being utilized for the development of ports and harbors, fisheries, beach resorts, land reclamation, location of shore-based industrial complexes, human settlements, agriculture, disposal of weights, etc. The coastal states of India are presently confronted with problems of coastal erosion. Pollution in estuaries and near-shore waters is, is becoming a serious problem requiring scientific solution. Due to the increase in population and industrialization and steadily increasing tourist traffic, there is an ever-increasing demand for more and more recreational beaches, tourist resorts, and scenic spots along the India's shoreline. Thus, the coastal zone is subjected to multiple use, leading thereby to conflicting demands for the exploitation of various coastal resources by different interested groups and user agencies. It has therefore become very vulnerable to destructive forces such as pollution and several other man-made changes. There is consequently a need for a comprehensive national policy and guidelines with requisite enforcing power for managing the various coastal and developmental activities in India. Increase in the volume of seaborne traffic in petroleum and petrochemical products, mineral ore, coal, fertilizer, food grain, etc., has necessitated the development of new harbors and the expansion of the existing harbor and port facilities in the country. Sea trade has become very competitive in the world. 
it is therefore necessary for India to reduce the unit cost of transportation by introducing large ships, cargo containerized and adopting new methods of handling cargo at high speed and in large bulk. Due to increase in population uh, and industrial activity, the estuaries and nearshore waters are being polluted because of the disposal of waste material. To develop suitable solution uh, to pollution problems, investigations are to be undertaken to study the diffusion and dispersion characteristics of coastal waters in which waste disposal is planned. To deal with the oil pollution problem, research and development on chemicals and oil cleaning equipment will have to be intensified. Suitable oil booms this and skimmers are to be developed or obtained. Recording. Production of oil and gas from the sea. The present production of offshore oil and natural gas is approximately 38% of the world production of, and this figure is likely to go up substantially by the turn of this century. India has mounted a major effort to increase its oil exploration and developmental capabilities. Over the next few years, uh, this effort is likely to increase rapidly, though the present activities related to offshore production of oil and gas are confined to Bombay High areas, the exploration activities are intensively going on both on the east and west coasts of India. To support the efforts in offshore exploration, it would be necessary for India to develop various related services indigenously. A large number of supply vessels and other multi-purpose support and inspection vessels, helicopters, crew boats, etc. are required. A large number of drilling and process platforms, including submarine pipelines, have already been installed and more of them will be constructed in the future. There are substantial reserves of oil and gas in the ocean. However, quite a large part of our continental shelf is still unexplored. Further technological progress in the method of drilling at depths beyond the shelf edge will enhance the potential of oil production from the offshore areas substantially. The production of oil and gas from the Bombay High oil field has gone up many times during the last 10 years. Continued oceanographic support is most essential for safe and optimum exploitation of offshore oil and gas. It is well known that vast areas around India have great potential for renewable sources of energy available in the form of ocean, thermal energy, waves, tides, and salinity gradients. The time is not far off when the extraction of energy from these sources will become economical because of the increasing cost of power generation from the dependable sources of energy such as coal, oil, and natural gas. A major research and development effort is being undertaken in the country to develop the necessary capabilities in this frontier area. India has been carrying out intensive studies on the extraction of energy from waves at the Indian Institute of Technology, Madras. And I would take this opportunity to give my highest appreciation to the scientists and engineers of the Ocean Engineering Center of IIT Madras for providing a major breakthrough in this field. Within a short span of seven years, the young team at Madras has developed a design of 150 kilowatt wave energy plant to be built in India. Based on the principles of oscillating water column, this plant is under construction at Virinjam in Kerala and will be commissioned very soon. Once in operation, this would be first plant of its kind in the world, completely designed, built, and managed by Indian scientists and engineers.